You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Now, the actual words are not recorded, but they're probably similar to scriptural words of praising God for His mighty deeds, like Psalm 106.2. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth all His praise? Maybe like Mary's words in Luke 1.51, He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Or Psalm 150 in verse 2, Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. If you've ever been to a busy city with crowds of people everywhere, you'll know it can be very chaotic, especially if there's some sort of big commotion. It can be very confusing and disturbing in a setting like this. However, as Pastor Tom teaches us in today's message, when the Holy Spirit stirred up the church to speak in tongues, it had the opposite effect. When they spoke in tongues praising God, it drew the people's attention to Him. It must have been a wonderful event to have witnessed. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he begins his message, Gift of Tongues, Reversal of Babel. One of my goals in preaching about the Holy Spirit is that you develop a thirst for the things of the Spirit of God. I really want you to comprehend how incredible this gift was. Christ gave us a gift. We say, well, that gift was himself, true enough. But he also gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit and how important he is, particularly in this dispensation. This is the age of the church, the arrangement of God's economy under the new covenant. You and I are partakers of this. We are post-Pentecost believers. We must, therefore, value our relationship with Christ's Spirit in the world. It should be important to us, and we should grow to try to understand it. After all, Christ came into the world, was born in Bethlehem. He came to save sinners. From what? From God's condemnation, which every man, woman, and child is under, by the way. All men are already under the condemnation of God. The only way they can escape that is to flee to the Savior, right? But Jesus exited the world and he returned back to heaven. And he did so, so that he could send the Holy Spirit into the world and dramatically inaugurate this new covenant age. It is important, however, as we grow in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, and that's our prayer, it's prayer for you and for me, that we need to make sure that we combine truth with our enthusiasm for the Holy Spirit. There is always a danger that one or the other will be left behind, that in enthusiasm for the Spirit, truth will not guide and error will begin taking over those who are well-meaning but are steered easily off course by spiritual forces. There is another equal danger, and that is that some study truth, but they don't sense the power and the vitality and the experience of that truth. And I'm afraid a church like ours may fall more into that category, where we try to deny and suppress enthusiasm of the things of the Spirit of God because, well, we are doctrinally astute. That also is an error. Because if you understand doctrine correctly, you understand that it should swell your heart with love and vibrancy for the things of Christ. Today, we're going to read about a mighty manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to study it in truth so we can appreciate it more and not abuse it. And the text today is Acts chapter 2, 
verses 5 through 13. I'm going to start with verse 4 in my reading and go down to verse 13. But we'll be concentrating on 5 through 13. Back to verse 4 of Acts chapter 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Well, this section of the word of God is about speaking in tongues. I think that's pretty obvious to everybody. It shows that from day one, the early church knew what the gift of tongues was, and they knew why it was given. The very first day, they knew. For all of the controversy over the gift of tongues here in modern times, the gift was given for a very noble purpose. And as you read this text, there is no ambiguity concerning what the gift actually was or what tongues was supposed to accomplish. This is a detailed historical record of the first occurrence of tongues, the first occurrence. As we study this together, my hope is that you will be able to tell the difference between this true work of the Holy Spirit and counterfeit works that are going on in our present age. From this text, I think it'll be best to sort of approach it in a question and answer kind of format. We're going to ask a couple of questions and then give some answers from the text about it, about tongue speaking. And then I also want to address some of the aberrant understanding of tongues or the work of the Holy Spirit today. And then lastly, I want to draw some applications for ourselves. So the first and the most basic question that surrounds this controversial gift is what is speaking in tongues? What is speaking in tongues? We'll start with the word tongue in Greek. Actually, go back to verse 4, and that's why I started reading there. In Greek, it's the term glossa. It's actually a word that is used some 50 times in the New Testament. It was the common word for the literal tongue, the physical organ in our mouths. By extension, it was then also used normally to refer to what the tongue would produce, and that is a spoken human language. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, for example, uses it this way. It speaks of Jesus in heaven, and it says, You were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue, that's glossa, 
and people and nations. So it's talking about languages. The same is true in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. There it's used in the plural, tongues. So you could translate Acts chapter 2 and verse 4 as languages. That would be a perfectly good translation of the term. And verse 4 also says they began to speak, to speak in tongues. What is that? Well, that is the infinitive form of a very common verb in Greek for ordinary intelligent speech. It's the term laleo. It is used numerous times in the New Testament, and it is always used for normal speech. So when Luke writes that they were speaking in tongues, that simply meant that they were talking in languages. That's not difficult to understand. Hopefully, you're already beginning to see that there really isn't some tremendous mystery that should be surrounding this wonderful gift of speaking in tongues. But though it's not a mysterious thing, it was a miraculous gift. Please notice in verse 4 again that they were filled with the Spirit of God, and then they began to speak with, notice the next word there, other tongues, other tongues. Other than their own tongue is what is meant. Other is the term heteros, and it means other of a different kind. It could even be translated, they spoke or they talked in different languages. That's a great translation for it. They talked in different languages. That is, languages from other lands, languages from other people groups, languages they would never have known. Some of them they probably had never even heard one word of. These were very simple disciples of Jesus. They were hardly world-renowned linguists that they would know seven languages or something like that. This was a group of mostly Galilean, and you need to understand the Galileans were looked down upon by the Judeans. They were just less educated. The Judeans were more the elites, and the Galileans were more the normal kind of people. These were uneducated, for the most part, Galilean disciples. And they immediately began speaking in all kinds of world languages, and evidently very well. Languages they did not know, and they couldn't possibly have known. Foreign languages to them, but still tongues spoken somewhere throughout the world. This was obviously not just a miracle. This was a grand miracle. This was a notable miracle. In fact, the text is so clear about the nature of the gift of tongues, it is mystifying how anybody can read Acts chapter 2 and not understand what it is. I mean, was Luke really all that difficult to understand? Luke even records each of the specific people's languages that these disciples burst forth speaking. Again, consider the list in verses 9 through 11. Just kind of look through it. You see Parthians and Medes and Elamites. And there's this long list of languages, and it continues. And Luke belabors the point that they're from all over. Egypt is mentioned. Arabs are mentioned. Libya, Rome. These were pious Jews. Now, they're not believers in Jesus, but they're religious Jews. I mean, they've come to Jerusalem. This is a religious city. So they're pious Jews from, from every direction of the globe. And then they, this group of pious Jews are hearing these uneducated, untraveled Galileans speaking their home language. And to them, it was incredulous. In fact, this list highlights many of the key Jewish settlements 
that were in existence at that time outside the land of Israel. And it probably indicates the scope of what was called the Jewish diaspora. You may remember in the Old Testament, the Jews were warned and warned again that if they violated their old covenant, the covenant that God had made with them on Mount Sinai, and they ended up following other gods, that God, their God, would be jealous and would eventually remove them from their land. You remember that? And so first, the northern tribes, the ten tribes of Israel, were torn off of their land by the Assyrians. And then later, the two southern tribes were torn off of their land by the Babylonians. Where were they taken? Where they were taken and they were dispersed. And, and they were gone for some 70 years before they were restored and began to rebuild their temple. And while they were out there, they, they had to live life. And they were put in different locations and they developed Jewish communities and they tended to cloister together to keep their study of the law and all of that going on. And, and during that time, they scattered and they, they grew up. Some people had never been in the land of Israel and one generation led to another. And so there was this massive number of Jews that lived outside the land of Israel and it was called the diaspora, the dispersion. But now verse 5 tells us that they were dwelling or living in Jerusalem. Notice that. So that means they had either returned from the diaspora and they'd already found housing in Jerusalem, or it could mean that they were in Jerusalem for what we would call an extended stay. Maybe some of them had come back for the Passover feast, and rather than journeying all the way home again, they decided to stay the extra 50 days. Maybe they had relatives in town. Maybe they were just doing it out of religious devotion. And they stayed all the way to the next feast, the Feast of Pentecost. Either way, their background is widespread throughout the known world and extended way beyond the bounds even of the Roman Empire. Parthia, for example, is in today's northern Iran. That was not part of the territory that Rome conquered, and Rome conquered a lot of territory. The Mesopotamian Valley is included there too. That would be to the east of the land of Israel. And then Rome is included. That's way over in the west. Egypt is mentioned to the southwest. There was a strong presence of Jews in the city of Alexandria. Actually, it's there where the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek, what we call the Septuagint. Cretans are from the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. Libya and Cyrene are mentioned. They're in northern Africa. And so there were Africans present here as well. The Arabian Peninsula is represented, people from modern-day Turkey and other locations. Now, there's one mention there of a place that is seemingly out of place, and, and scholars have talked a lot about this, and that is Judea. I mean, Jerusalem is in Judea, so why are they talking about that as something far away with a different language? But probably Judea means here is being spoken of in a more broad sense, maybe referring to the boundaries of the ancient kingdom of Judea, which spread much further, and it would include places like Syria. So all of these languages from this wide, scattered locations, many of these places, they were being spoken, and they were being spoken one after another, and they were being spoken miraculously in front of a large crowd of these Jews. In fact, Luke equates the tongues that they spoke on that day with another term for language. It's found, look down in verse 8, and it's translated as language, but it's dialectos. And you might hear an English word we get from that, and that is dialect. Dialect. 
That's just another normal word for a normal human language, but it stresses the characteristics of a particular region, the dialect that would develop there. So clearly these disciples were not speaking in some ecstatic utterance. That's commonly heard in charismatic and Pentecostal churches. I know because I've spent plenty of time in my life in them, and I know what has been heard and what is there, and it's pretty common, and it basically is what we would call, or they call to, ecstatic utterance. Ecstatic utterances are not languages. They've been recorded. They've been studied in detail. Often they just repeat the same syllables over and over, changing from one syllable to another, back to a third, or some other highly repetitive kind of outbursts. It's nonsensical. It's not language. There's no order to it. It doesn't take a linguist to understand that what's being heard is not a language. They're not speaking in any kind of discernible language at all. Modern ecstatic speech is not a miracle. It is a human phenomenon. It has been well documented. It goes on throughout the world, even in non-Christian groups. All kinds of religious groups in their worship speak in ecstatic utterances. The same was true in ancient times. People of ancient times were well aware of ecstatic utterances. They were spoken by many of the Greek oracles as they consulted their gods, which in that case would have been demonic. When worshipers worked themselves up into a state of intense emotion, it would often increase the ecstatic utterances. Ecstatic speech would not be anything noteworthy for Luke to take time to record and say, wow, look at this. People back then, as now, would hardly be impressed with such a phenomenon. It would not attract the attention of thousands, and even if it did, it wouldn't lead to the conversion of thousands of people, as we see here. Indeed, outsiders today, when they hear about churches who break out speaking in ecstatic speech in their worship services or by themselves, are not convinced that anything noteworthy is occurring at all. It may be strange to some ears, but it's certainly not miraculous. Since ecstatic speech is fairly common, and it's fairly common without the Holy Spirit, it's not something all that impressive. Pentecost, however, was miraculous, and it was very impressive. I wish I could have been there. That would have been just amazing. I'm even trying to figure out how would that sound. If you love language and you love the diversity of language, maybe this would be impressive to you and you wish that you could hear it. Because they were praising God and they were doing it miraculously in language they had never spoken. Imagine the speaker and hearing the things that were coming out of their mouth. Imagine being one of those people and you realize, wow, what is happening here? It's, the tongue is being driven in some miraculous way. The brain is even being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Just imagine that. It's kind of like in that movie, The Matrix, you, know, you have an instant download of knowledge, except this time it would be Rosetta Stone or something. You know, just dial up 15 languages. I'd like this one, this one, this one, this one. Your head shakes a little bit and you come out and you say it, except none of that happened. That's sci-fi. This is real. This happened in history. Now, the actual words are not recorded. But they're probably similar to scriptural words of praising God for his mighty deeds, like Psalm 106.2. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth all his praise? Maybe like Mary's words in Luke 1.51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. 
Or Psalm 150 in verse 2, praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. So there it is. That is what the gift of tongues is. Talking in different languages. There it is, and it's a miracle. Now, that leads us to a second question, and it's just a natural question that would kind of fall out here as you're reading and you're trying to understand and interpret. You'd want to know why. I know what, but why? Why was the gift of tongues given? Why did the Lord do this on this day? Again, this isn't really that hard to perceive. Please notice that the filling of the Holy Spirit prompted a chorus of praises to God. And look at verse 6. It indicates that their praises in these other languages were either so loud within the house or more likely by now pouring out into the streets that that noise of them calling out the praises of God in these different languages drew a larger and larger crowd of interest in Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand that these ancient cities were small by our standards. So something that is happening a few streets over can be heard here. I mean, none of the ancient cities were really large by our standards today. Rome was the largest city in the ancient world that had ever been known, and I think it had around a million people. Columbia, greater Columbia, has 100,000. But Jerusalem was much smaller, and it was all packed in there, and the streets are narrow. And so there's something probably pouring out into the square. Maybe there is a little larger of a square. Some have said, well, the only place that could handle a crowd like that would have been up in the temple precincts. That's possible. We don't really know. It doesn't actually say. But that word in verse 6 called sound in Greek is phone. Again, you can hear words that we get in English from that, phone. It's a different word than was used back in verse 2, that word that's translated by the Nazbe noise. That was the noise of the violent wind. So it makes more sense that the sound that drew the crowd of Jerusalem dwellers was the tongues of praises being loudly proclaimed and sounding rather clamorous and drawing people out. Maybe it was quiet and it was in the morning and it just drew many people out into the streets. The sound of the wind was given for the sake of the believing disciples to confirm for them that this was the day Jesus had spoken of, the Spirit has arrived and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. The sound of the tongues was given for the sake of the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. We call them unbelieving. Remember, they're believers in God and they're devout, but they're not believers in Christ. They're not born again. For notice down in verse 11, what the Jewish people were amazed about here, they weren't going on to talk about the noise of the wind. They went on to speak of the mighty deeds of God, hearing that in their native tongues. That's what mesmerizes them. That's what enthralls them. That's what draws them in and makes them think about this. They're riveted not on the sound of the wind, but on this use of the languages. What is this? It's a little difficult to picture exactly what happened, but it must have been loud and it must have been amazing. So the miracle of the gift of languages was meant, listen, was meant as a sign for unbelievers. The miracle of the gift of languages was meant, according to Acts chapter 2, as a sign for unbelievers. Remember Jesus in his ministry to the Jews, he provided for them 
thousands of miracles. The Jews were trained in the Old Testament that when God raised up a prophet, the prophet would perform a sign. And if the sign came true, and if his doctrine was compatible with Moses' doctrine, then he was a true prophet of God. If he didn't provide a sign, or if he did and his doctrine did not harmonize with Moses's, then he was not a true prophet of God. He was a false prophet, and the people were not to listen to him. Jesus knew that, and Jesus provided the Jews with tons of miraculous signs. The gift of tongues is one that has been highly controversial. It has been abused by some and denied by others. As Pastor Tom taught us from the scriptures today, it's not something we should be afraid of. What happened on that day of Pentecost was a genuine work of the Holy Spirit in His church. Those that spoke in tongues that day glorified God by declaring His wonderful works, and those that heard Him were soon changed forever. Discover Hope is a listener-supported ministry, and we'd like to offer you the opportunity to be a part of sharing the gospel message. Would you join us in praying for our listeners? Pray that the love and grace of Jesus will be evident in each new broadcast, and that many would come to know the hope of salvation. Thanks for praying. If you feel led to contribute financially to this ministry as well, you can do so by visiting hopebible.org and clicking the giving tab at the top of the page. We appreciate every amount given and use it to continue producing the messages of Pastor Tom Leake that you hear on Discover Hope. Although there are many thoughts, ideas, and traditions concerning the gift of tongues, we should always go to Scripture as the highest authority on the subject. Make sure to tune in next time as Pastor Tom continues to teach us what God's Word has to say about the gift of tongues why it's so important, what its purpose is, and how we should and shouldn't view its place in the church. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Discover Hope. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting hopebiblechurch.org. And be sure to join us again right here on Discover Hope.